Wuthering Heights, Chapter 18. We've got some Lego action going on on the rug next to me here, so you might hear some Lego tinklings while I read. I hope they won't be too loud. So, to Chapter 18. For 12 years, continued Mrs. Dean, following that dismal period were the happiest of my life. My greatest troubles in their passage rose from our little lady's trifling illnesses, which she had to experience in common with all children, rich and poor. For the rest, after the first six months, she grew like a larch and could walk and talk too in her own way before the heath blossomed a second time over Mrs. Linton's dust. She was the most winning thing that ever brought sunshine into a desolate house, a real beauty in face, with the Earnshaw's handsome dark eyes, but the Linton's fair skin and small features and yellow curling hair. Her spirit was high, though not rough, and qualified by a heart sensitive and lively to excess in its affections. That capacity for intense attachments reminded me of her mother. Still, she did not resemble her, for she could be soft and mild as a dove, and she had a gentle voice and pensive expression. Her anger was never furious, her love never fierce, it was deep and tender. However, it must be acknowledged she had faults to foil her gifts. A propensity to be saucy was one, and a perverse will that indulged children invariably acquire, whether they be good-tempered or cross. If a servant chanced to vex her, it was always, I shall tell papa. And if he reproved her, even by a look, you wouldn't have thought it a heartbreaking business. I don't believe he ever did speak a harsh word to her. He took her education entirely on himself and made it an amusement. Fortunately, curiosity and a quick intellect made her an apt scholar. She learned rapidly and eagerly and did honour to his teaching. Till she reached the age of 13, she had not once been beyond the range of the park by herself. Mr Linton would take her with him a mile or so outside on rare occasions, but he trusted her to no one else. Gimmerton was an unsubstantial name in her ears, the chapel the only building she had approached or entered except her own home. Wuthering Heights and Mr Heathcliff did not exist for her. She was a perfect recluse and apparently perfectly contented. Sometimes, indeed, while surveying the country from her nursery window, she would observe, Ellen, how long will it be before I can walk to the top of those hills? I wonder what lies on the other side. Is it the sea? No, Miss Cathy, I would answer. It is hills again, just like these. And what are those golden rocks like when you stand under them? She once asked. The abrupt descent of Peniston Crag particularly attracted her notice, especially when the setting sun shone on it in the topmost heights and the whole extent of landscape besides lay in shadow. I explained that they were bare masses of stone with hardly enough in their clefts to nourish a stunted tree. And why are they bright so long after it is evening here, she pursed. Because they are a great deal higher up than we are, replied I. You could not climb them. They are too high and steep. In winter the frost is always there before it comes to us, and deep in summer I have found snow under the black hollow on the northeast side. Oh, you have been on them, she cried gleefully. Then I can go too when I am a woman. Has Papa been, Ellen? Papa would tell you, miss, I answered hastily, that there are not worth trouble of visiting. 
The moors, where you ramble with him, are much nicer, and Thrushcross Park is the finest place in the world. But I know the park and I don't know those, she murmured to herself, and I should delight to look around me from the brow of that tallest point. My little pony, Minnie, shall take me some time. One of the maids, mentioning the fairy cave, quite turned her head with a desire to fulfil this project. She teased Mr Linton about it and she promised she would have the journey when she got older. But Miss Catherine measured her age by months and, Now, am I old enough to go to Peniston Crag? was the constant question in her mouth. The road thither wound close by Wuthering Heights. Edgar had not the heart to pass it. So she received as constantly the answer, not yet, love, not yet. I said Mrs Heathcliff lived a dozen years after quitting her husband. Her family were of a delicate constitution. She and Edgar both lacked the ruddy health that you would generally meet in these parts. What her last illness was, I am not certain. I conjecture they died of the same thing, a kind of fever, slow at its commencement but incurable, and rapidly consuming life towards the close. She wrote to inform her brother of the probable conclusion of a four months indisposition under which she had suffered and entreated him to come to her if possible, for she had much to settle and she wished to bid him adieu and deliver Linton safely into his hands. Her hope was that Linton might be left with him as he had been with her his father, she would fain convince herself, had no desire to assume the burden of his maintenance or education. My master hesitated not a moment in complying with her request. Reluctant as he was to leave home at ordinary calls, he flew to answer this, commending Catherine to my particular vigilance in his absence, with reiterated orders that she must not wander out of the park, even under my escort. He did not calculate on her going unaccompanied. He was away three weeks. The first day or two, my charge sat in the corner of the library, too sad for either reading or playing. In that quiet state, she caused me little trouble. But it was succeeded by an interval of impatient, fretful weariness. And being too busy and too old by then to run up and down amusing her, I hit on a method by which she might entertain herself. I used to send her on her travels round the grounds, now on foot, now on a pony, indulging her with a patient audience of all her real and imaginary adventures when she returned. The summer shone in full prime, and she took such a taste for this solitary rambling that she often contrived to remain out from breakfast till tea, and then the evenings were spent in recounting her fanciful tales. I did not fear her breaking bonds, because the gates were generally locked, and I thought she would scarcely venture forth alone if they had stood open wide. Unluckily, my confidence proved misplaced. Catherine came to me one morning at eight o'clock, and said she was that day an Arabian merchant going to cross the desert with his caravan, and I must give her plenty of provision for herself and her beasts, a horse and three camels, personated by a large hound and a couple of pointers. I got together a good store of dainties and slung them in a basket on one side of the saddle and she sprang up as gay as a fairy, sheltered by her wide-brimmed hat and gauze veil from the July sun 
and trotted off with a merry laugh, mocking my cautious counsel to avoid galloping and come back early. The naughty thing never made her appearance at tea. One traveller, the hound, being an old dog and fond of its ease, returned, but neither Cathy nor the pony nor the two pointers were visible in any direction. I dispatched emissaries down the path and that path and this path and at last went wandering in search of her myself. There was a labourer working at a fence round a plantation on the border of the grounds. I inquired him if he'd seen our young lady. I saw her at morn, he replied. She would have me cut her a hazel switch and then she leapt her galloway over the hedge yonder where it is lowest and galloped out of sight. You may guess how I felt at hearing this news. It struck me directly she must have started for Peniston Crag. What will become of her? I ejaculated, pushing through a gap which the man was repairing and making straight for the high road. I walked as if for a wager, mile after mile, till a turn brought me in view of the heights, but no Catherine could I detect far or near. The crags lie about a mile and a half beyond Mr Heathcliff's place, and that is four from the Grange, so I began to fear night would fall ere I could reach them. What if she should have slipped in clamouring among them, I reflected, and been killed or broken some of her bones? My suspense was truly painful, and at first it gave me delightful relief to observe, in hurrying by the farmhouse, Charlie, the fiercest of the pointers, lying under a window, with a swelled head and bleeding ear. I opened the wicket and ran to the door, knocking vehemently for admittance. A woman whom I knew, who was formerly lived at Gimmerton, answered. She had been a servant there since the death of Mr Earnshaw. Ah, said she, you are come a-seeking your little mistress. Don't be frightened, she's here safe, but I'm glad it isn't the master. He is not at home then, is he? I panted, quite breathless with walking and alarm. No, no, she replied, both he and Joseph are off, and I think they won't return this hour or more. Step in and rest a bit. I entered and beheld my stray lamb seated on the hearth, rocking herself in a little chair that had been her mother's when a child. Her hat was hung against the wall, and she seemed perfectly at home, laughing and chattering in the best spirits imaginable to Hareton, now a great strong lad of eighteen, who stared at her with considerable curiosity and astonishment, comprehending precious little of the fluent succession of remarks and questions which her tongue never ceased pouring forth. "'Very well, miss,' I exclaimed, concealing my joy under an angry countenance. "'This is your last ride till Papa comes back. "'I'll not trust you over the threshold again, you naughty, naughty girl.' "'Aha, Ellen!' she cried gaily, jumping up and running to my side. "'I shall have a pretty story to tell tonight. "'And so you found me. Have you ever been here in your life before?' "'Put that hat on and come home at once,' I said. I'm dreadfully grieved at you, Miss Cathy. You've done extremely wrong. It's no use pouting and crying. That won't repay the trouble I've had scouring the country after you. To think how Mr Linton charged me to keep you in and you stealing off so. It shows you are a cunning little fox and nobody will put faith in you any more. What have I done? sobbed she, instantly checked. Papa charged me nothing. He'll not scold me, Ellen. He's never cross like you. Come, come, I repeated. I'll tie the ribbon. Now come, 
have no petulance or for shame, you 13 years old and such a baby. This exclamation was caused by her pushing the hat from her head and retreating to the chimney out of my reach. Nay, said the servant, don't be hard on a bonny lass, Mrs Dean. We've made her stop. She'd fain have ridden forwards, have feared you should be uneasy. Hareton offered to go with her, and I thought he should. It's a wild road over the hills. Hareton, during the discussion, stood with his hands in his pockets, too awkward to speak, though he looked as if he did not relish my intrusion. How long am I to wait? I continued, disregarding the woman's interference. It will be dark in ten minutes. Where is the pony, Miss Cathy? And where is Phoenix? I shall leave you unless you be quick, so please yourself. The pony is in the yard, she replied, and Phoenix is shut in there. He's bitten, and so is Charlie. I was going to tell you all about it, but you are in a bad temper and don't deserve to hear. I picked up her hat and approached to reinstate it, but perceiving that the people of the house took her part, she commenced capering round the room and on my giving chase ran like a mouse over and under and behind the furniture, rendering it ridiculous for me to pursue. Hareton and the woman laughed and she joined them and waxed more impertinent still till I cried in great irritation, Well, Miss Cathy, if you were aware whose house this is, you'd be glad to get out. It's your father's, isn't it? she said, turning to Hareton. Nay, he replied, looking down blushing bashfully. He could not stand a steady gaze from her eyes, though they were just his own. Who's then? Your master's? she asked. His colour deepened with a different feeling, muttered an oath and turned away. Who is his master? continued the tiresome girl, appealing to me. He talked about our house and our folk. I thought he had been the owner's son. And he never said, miss, he should have done, shouldn't he, if he's a servant? He Hareton grew black as a thundercloud at this childish speech. I silently shook my questioner and at last succeeded in equipping her for departure. Now, get my horse, she said, addressing her unknown kinsman, as she would one of the stable boys at the Grange. And you may come with me. I want to see where the goblin hunter rises in the marsh and to hear about the fairishes, as you call them. But make haste. What's the matter? Get my horse, I say. I'll see thee damned before I become thy servant, growled the lad. You'll see me what? asked Catherine in surprise. Damned, thou saucy witch, he replied. There, Miss Cathy, you see you have got into a pretty company, I interposed. Nice words to be used to a young lady. Pray don't begin to dispute with him. Come, let us seek for Minnie ourselves and be gone. But Ellen, cried she, staring in fixed astonishment, how dare he speak so to me? Mustn't he be made to do as I ask him? You wicked creature, I shall tell Papa what you said. Now then. Ayrton did not appear to feel this threat, so the tears sprang into her eyes with indignation. You bring the pony, she exclaimed, turning to the woman, and let my dog free this moment. Softly, miss, answered the addressed. You'll lose nothing by being civil. Though Mr Hareton there be not the master's son, he's your cousin, and I was never hired to serve you. He, my cousin, cried Cathy with a scornful laugh. Yes, indeed, responded her approver. Oh, Ellen, don't let them say such things, she pursued in great trouble. 
Papa is gone to fetch my cousin from London. My cousin is a gentleman's son. That my... She stopped and wept outright, upset at the bare notion of relationship with such a clown. Hush, hush, I whispered. People can have many cousins of all sorts, Miss Cathy, without being any the worse for it. Only they needn't keep their company if they be disagreeable and bad. He's not. He's not my cousin, Ellen, she went on, gathering fresh grief from reflection and flinging herself into my arms for refuge from the idea. I was much vexed at her and the servant for their mutual revelations, having no doubt of Linton's approaching arrival, communicated by the former, being reported to Mr Heathcliff, and feeling as confident that Catherine's first thought on her father's return would be to seek an explanation of the latter's assertion concerning her rude-bred kindred. Hareton, recovering from his disgust at being taken for a servant, seemed moved by her distress, and having fetched the pony round to the door, he took, to appropriate her, a fine crooked-legged terrier whelp from the kennel, and putting it into her hand, bid her wished for he meant naught. Pausing in her lamentations, she surveyed him with a glance of awe and horror, and then burst forth anew. I could scarcely refrain from smiling at this antipathy to the poor fellow, who was a well-made, athletic youth, good-looking in features and stout and healthy, but attired in garments befitting his daily occupations of working on the farm and lounging among the moors after rabbits and game. Still, I thought I could detect in his physiognomy a mind owing better qualities than his father ever possessed. Good things lost amid a wilderness of weeds, to be sure, whose rankness far overtopped their neglected growth. Yet, notwithstanding evidence of a wealthy soil that might yield luxuriant crops under another and favourable circumstances. Mr Heathcliff, I believe, had not treated him physically ill, thanks to his fearless nature, which offered no temptation to that course of oppression. He had done none of the tim he had none of the timid susceptibility that would have given zest to ill treatment in Heathcliff's judgment. He appeared to have bent his malevolence on making him a brute. He was never taught to read or write, never rebuked for any bad habit which did not annoy his keeper, never led a single step toward virtue or guarded by a single precept against vice. And from what I heard, Joseph contributed much to his deterioration by a narrow-minded partiality which prompted him to flatter and pet him as a boy because he was the head of the old family. And he had been in the habit of accusing Catherine Earnshaw and Heathcliff when children of putting the master past his patience and compelling him to seek solace in drink by what he termed their offled ways. So at present he laid the whole burden of Hareton's faults on the shoulders of the usurper of his property. If the lad swore he wouldn't correct him, nor however culpably he behaved, it gave Joseph satisfaction apparently to watch him go the worst lengths. He allowed that he was ruined, that his soul was abandoned to perdition. But then he reflected that Heathcliff's must answer for it, Hareton's blood would be required at his hands, and there lay immense consolation in that thought. Joseph had instilled into him a pride of name and of his lineage. He would, had he dared, have fostered hate between him and the present owner of the Heights. But his dread of that owner amounted to superstition, 
and he confined his feelings regarding him to muttered innuendos and private combinations. I don't pretend to be intimately acquainted with the mode of living customary in those days at Wuthering Heights. I only speak from hearsay, for I saw little. The villagers affirmed Mr Heathcliff was near and a cruel hard landlord to his tenants, but the house inside had regained its ancient aspect of comfort under female management, and in the scenes of riot common in Hindley's time were not now enacted within its walls. The master was too gloomy to seek companionship with any people, good or bad, and he is yet. This, however, is not making progress with my story. Miss Cathy rejected the peace offering of the terrier and demanded her own dogs, Charlie and Phoenix. They came limping and hanging their heads, and we set out for home, sadly out of sorts, every one of us. I could not ring from my little lady how she had spent the day, except that, as I suppose, the goal of her pilgrimage was Peniston Crag, and she arrived without adventure to the gate of the farmhouse, where Hareton happened to issue forth, attended by some canine followers who attacked her train. They had a smart battle before their owners could separate them that formed an introduction. Catherine told Hareton who she was and where she was going and asked him to show her the way, finally beguiling him to accompany her. He opened the mysteries of the fairy cave and 20 other queer places. But, being in disgrace, I was not favoured with a description of the interesting objects she saw. I could gather, however, that her guide had been a favourite till she hurt his feelings by addressing him as a servant, and Heathcliff's housekeeper hurt hers by calling him her cousin. Then the language he had held to her rankled in her heart. She who was always love and darling and queen and angel with everyone at the Grange, to be insulted so shockingly by a stranger. She did not comprehend it, and hard work I had to obtain a promise that she would not lay the grievance before her father. I explained how he objected to the whole household at the Heights, and how sorry he would be to find she had been there. But I insisted most on the fact that if she revealed my negligence of his orders, he would perhaps be so angry that I should have to leave. And Cathy couldn't bear that prospect. She pledged her word and kept it for my sake. After all, she was a sweet little girl. I'm going to move on to chapter 19 now. Rob has started playing downstairs. I'm not sure whether it's coming out on the recording. I hope it's not too loud. Um, so we have a, a, a soundtrack of perhaps music and Lego for chapter 19. Chapter 19. A letter, edged with black, announced the day of my master's return. Isabella was dead, and he wrote to bid me get my mourning for him and his daughter and arrange a room with other accommodations for his youthful nephew. Catherine ran wild with joy at the idea of welcoming her father back and indulged most sanguine anticipations of the innumerable excellences of her real cousin. The evening of their expected arrival came. Since early morning she had been busy ordering her own small affairs and now, attired in her new black frock, poor thing, her aunt's death impressed her with no definite sorrow. She obliged me by constant worrying to walk with her down through the grounds to meet them. 
Linton is just six months older than I am, she chattered, as we strolled leisurely over the swells and hollows of mossy turf under the shadow of trees. How delightful it will be to have him for a playfellow. Aunt Isabella sent Papa a beautiful lock of his hair. It was lighter than mine, more flaxen and quite as fine. I've thought it carefully, I have it carefully preserved in a little glass box and I've often thought what pleasure it would be to see its owner. Oh, I am happy and Papa, dear Papa, come Ellen, let us run, come, run. She ran and returned and ran again many times before my sober footsteps reached the gate and then she seated herself on the grassy bank beside the path and tried to wait patiently. But that was impossible. She couldn't be still a minute. How long they are, she exclaimed. Ah, I see some dust on the road. They are coming? No. When will they be here? Maybe we not go a little way. Half a mile, Ellen. Only just half a mile. Do say yes. To that clump of birches at the turn. I refused staunchly. At length her suspense was ended. The travelling carriage rolled into sight. Miss Cathy shrieked and stretched out her arms as soon as she caught her father's face looking from the window. He descended, nearly as eager as herself, and a considerable interval elapsed ere they had had a thought to spare for any but themselves. While they exchanged caresses, I took a peep in to see after Linton. He was asleep in a corner, wrapped in a warm, fur-lined cloak as if it had been winter. A pale, delicate, ephemerate boy, who might have been taken for my master's younger brother, so strong was the resemblance. But there was a sickly peevishness in his aspect that Edgar Linton never had. The latter saw me looking, and having shaken hands, advised me to close the door and leave him undisturbed, for the journey had fatigued him. Cathy would fain have taken one glance, but her father told her to come, and they walked together up the path while I hastened before to prepare the servants. Now, darling, said Mr Linton, addressing his daughter as they halted at the bottom of the front steps. Your cousin is not so strong or so merry as you are, and he has lost his mother, remember, a very short time since. Therefore, don't expect him to play and run about with you directly, and don't harass him much by talking. Let him be quiet this evening at least, will you? Yes, yes, papa, answered Catherine, but I do want to see him, and he hasn't looked out once. The carriage stopped, and the sleeper being roused was lifted to the ground by his uncle. This is your cousin Cathy, Linton, he said, putting their little hands together. She's fond of you already, and mind you don't grieve her by crying tonight. Try to be cheerful now. The travelling is at an end, and you have nothing to do but rest and amuse yourself as you please. Let me go to bed then, answered the boy, shrinking from Catherine's salute and he put his fingers up to remove incipient tears. Come, come, there's a good child, I whispered, leading him in. You'll make her weep too. You, you see how sorry she is for you. I do not know whether it was sorrow for him, but his cousin put on a sad countenance as himself and returned to her father. All three entered and mounted to the library, where tea was laid already. I prepared to remove Linton's cap and mantle and placed him on a chair by the table, but he was no sooner seated than he began to cry afresh. My master inquired what was the matter. I can't sit on a chair, sobbed the boy. Go to the sofa then and Ellen shall bring you some tea. 
answered his uncle patiently. He had been greatly tired during the journey, I felt convinced by his fretful, ailing charge. Linton slowly trailed himself off and lay down. Cathy carried a footstool and a cup to his side. At first she sat silent, but that could not last. She had resolved to make a pet of her little cousin, as she would have him be, and she commenced stroking his curls and kissing his cheek and offering him tea from a saucer like a baby. This pleased him, for he was not much better. He dried his eyes and lighted into a faint smile. Oh, he'll do very well, said the master to me after watching them a minute. Very well, if we can keep him, Ellen. The company of a child of his own age will instil new spirit into him soon, and by wishing for strength he'll gain it. Aye, if we can keep him, I mused to myself, and sore misgivings came over me that there was a slight, there was slight hope of that. And then I thought, however will that weakling live at Wuthering Heights? Between his father and Hareton, what playmates and instructors they'll be. Our doubts were presently decided, even earlier than I expected. I had just taken the child upstairs, after finishing tea, and seen Linton asleep. He would not suffer me to leave him till that was the case. I had come down and was standing by the table in the hall, lighting a bedroom candle for Mr Edgar, when a maid stepped out of the kitchen and informed me that Mr Heathcliff's servant Joseph was at the door and wished to speak with the master. I shall ask him what he wants first, I said in considerable trepidation. A very unlikely hour to be troubling people, and the instant they have returned from a long journey, I don't think the master can see him. Joseph had advanced through the kitchen as I uttered these words and now presented himself in the hall. He was donned in his Sunday garments with his most sanctimonious and sourest face and holding his hat in one hand and his stick in the other, he proceeded to clean his shoes on the mat. Good evening, Joseph, I said coldly. What business brings you here tonight? It's Meister Linton I meant to speak to, he answered, waving me disdainfully aside. Mr Linton is gone to bed. Unless you have something particular to say, I'm sure he won't hear it now, I continued. You'd better sit down in there and trust your message to me. Where is his room? pursued the fellow, surveying the range of closed doors. I perceived he was bent on refusing my mediation, so very reluctantly I went up to the library and announced the unseasonable visitor, advising that he should be dismissed till next day. Mr Linton had no time to empower me to do so, for Joseph mounted close at my heels and, pushing into the apartment, planted himself at the far side of the table with his two fists clapped on the head of his stick and he began in an elevated tone as if anticipating opposition. Heathcliff has sent me for his lad and I mun go back about him. Edgar Linton was silent a minute. An expression of exceeding sorrow overcast his features. He would have pitied the child on his own account, but recalling Isabella's hopes and fears and anxious wishes for her son and her commendations of him to his care, he grieved bitterly at the prospect of yielding him up and searched in his heart how it might be avoided. No plan offered itself. The very exhibition of any desire to keep him would have rendered the claimant more peremptory. There was nothing left but to resign him. However, he was not going to rouse him from his sleep. 
Tell Mr Heathcliff, he answered calmly, that his son shall come to Wuthering Heights tomorrow. He is in bed and too tired to go the distance now. You may also tell him that the mother of Linton desired him to remain under my guardianship and, at present, his health is very precarious. No, said Joseph, giving a thud with his prop on the floor and assuming an authoritative air. No, that means not. Heathcliff makes no counter to mother, nor ye neither. But he'll have his lad, and I mun't take him, so now ye know. You shall not tonight, answered Linton decisively. Walk downstairs at once and repeat to your master what I have said. Ellen, show him down. Go. And aiding the indignant elder with a lift by the arm, he rid the room of him and closed the door. Very well, shouted Joseph as he slowly drew off. To morn, he's come himself and thrust him out if you dare. <laughs>